We are again today in 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 2. We're going to jump into chapter 3 as well. Should be around page 986 on the Bibles in the rows. Um, if you don't have your own copy, but we will be reading 217 through 35 this morning as our text. So turn your attention and your heart to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word this morning. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Now let's go to Him, as we need His Spirit to be at work in us, to understand and to ingest and take in His Holy Word. Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Stir our spirits by Your Spirit. Draw us near to You. Lord, conform us to the image of Your Son, Make us more that bride of Christ that you call us to be. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. Ever consider how amazingly connected we are today? To be able to call or even video call someone from pretty much anywhere in the world is, it's kind of unreal. When I was a kid using a rotary phone with a cord um, to take it down the hall to go into the bathroom to shut the door to talk to anybody to get privacy, this was kind of unthinkable. The ease of communication is undeniable today, yet that ease doesn't, doesn't necessarily guarantee any substantial communication or communion. People don't really know one another, and as a whole, we are a people more and more isolated today. Loneliness is at epidemic proportions. It's not uncommon, though, to, to be out and about and you see a group of people together or a couple on a date, and they're not looking at each other. They're not talking with each other. They're on their phone. No one talks to anyone while standing in line anymore because there's so much more you can get done on a six-inch screen than talking to that person in front of you. One person wrote, "'Convenience has removed the communion from communication.'" The trend toward efficiency in the place of fellowship has impacted the church. It's sad that it has. The church should be different. The church should be a place of significant fellowship and relationships. Now, that does not mean that you hang out all the time or are best friends with everyone in the church, but it certainly 
does mean that the church is a place where you are loved and cared for, where you're strengthened and established and comforted and exhorted in your faith and life as a whole. It's a place where people actually care about each other. Paul most certainly had this love and care for those to whom he ministered. You can hear his longing for the well-being of others throughout his writings and especially in our text this morning. He knew that having a deep, affectionate, and, and communal relationship with the church was vital. Within that community, one would experience love. They'd be able to handle any danger that inevitably came, and then they would persevere in the grace of God. This is what we are looking at this morning, this profile of a community that is pleasing to God. Profile of a community that's pleasing to God. And we're going to look at three different things, community of love, a community in danger, and a community that perseveres. So Paul's mode of operation and ministry was not one that, he wasn't one who merely shared information with people. He, was, he wasn't aloof in any way. He, his, his life was one lived with others. He shared his life and was a man of deep affection. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 8. He was a man who saw the value of being loved and being in community. We can see this in the language he used and how he expressed himself in this part of the letter and, and really throughout this letter and throughout his, all of his letters. But look at verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now remember this, Paul and his companions were in Thessalonica for three, maybe four weeks at maximum. And yet they're leaving, they're being forced out of the city, felt to them like being torn away, like being ripped apart. The word that Paul used, actually the, the root of that word uh, is, is the same language that's used for being an orphan. He's saying, we were orphaned from you, or you were orphaned from us, however you want to take it. But, 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 but you can feel that separation, that distance that he felt in that. He didn't want to leave. He was ripped away. And in a sense, part of him was left behind. He makes that clear in stating that he may have been torn away bodily, but his heart was still with them. He and those with him longed to be back with the Thessalonian community. Again, the language, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire. They made every effort to make it there. When you say endeavored the more eagerly, that, that's enough in and of itself, but with great desire. I mean, he's adding and piling on top of this over and over again. They attempted it. Was, it was an intense and a fervent longing to be with these Thessalonians. Now, what drove this longing? couldn't have been that he made best friends while he was there in three weeks. I think it was his pastoral heart. That heart brought him a, a fairly constant pastoral anxiety for the churches. You can look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight and see that. And it got to the point in the midst of all his attempts to go and, and being hindered again and again by Satan that, that finally he was, if you look at 3.1, willing to be left behind at Athens alone. There's, there's, a, there's a little bit of debate whether Paul was actually alone or whether Silas was with him. And, and, and really, one way or the other, it doesn't matter that much because he was willing to send Timothy, this, this man who was of great value to him, this man who was a, a brother and a, and a co-worker in, in, in the gospel to, to, to go. He was willing to be separated in order to see the Thessalonians taken care of. 
Folks, this brings up a few questions for me and for all of us to ask in regard to the nature of our love for one another, our affection for fellow believers in Christ. What are we willing to sacrifice in order to care for each other? Do we have that deep of a love, that love in Christ that, that, that drives us and directs us? What are we willing to give up in order to make sure those in our community, in our sphere, are doing well and are cared for? Are we willing to give up some downtime, some free time, some finances, some trouble, or even just actually just simple inconvenience maybe, in order to love one another well? And let me just say this. I think as a church, we do this pretty well. I really do. And, and this, is, this is also a place where, where, as a pastor, I would want to say, well, let's excel still more. Let's press on further and further. I, I, we are a loving and caring community, but not everyone experiences it in the same degree or in the same manner. And some of that, I will say, can fall on the person who needs it because they may not open up and say, I need care for, and say, I need encouragement. Okay, some of that can fall there, but some of it is on the community as a whole, not demonstrating it, not reaching out, not getting out of our own circles to care for those around us. And so this is where I say, let's excel. Let's press forward and be more and more of that loving community that God calls us to be. Now, let's, let, let's look at verses 19 and 20 now. Paul wrote, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, at, at first read, these, these verses may seem a little bit odd or, or difficult, but the gist of them is, is that these believers in Thessalonica are not only loved by Paul, but they're his joy, his, his hope. Now, now, that does not mean that Paul is hoping in them over his hope in the Lord. Or finding joy in them rather than the Lord. Rather, what this is communicating is Paul's delight in these believers, as well as the reality that his life and faith is actually quite tied up with the life and faith of the Thessalonians. Because at the Lord's coming, he's going to be able to say, You're, th these are my crown and my hope and my, my, my glory and my joy. They are a testimony to his ministry. They attest to the fact that Paul delivered not his own words. He didn't go trying to sell himself or, or his own program. He went and, and proclaimed the words of the Lord. He proclaimed the gospel, the word of God, and that word changed these people. Paul didn't bring about their conversion. He didn't merit that. We know that. He, he knows that. But his bringing the gospel was the means by which God worked to affect their salvation. Folks, those who bring the word are blessed. And at the coming of our Lord Jesus, Paul will be able to say to the Lord, here are those that you have given me. And in, in, in many ways, they are the fruit of my ministry. They are yours. They will be his crown of boasting of exaltation in the labors that he long suffered in. As John Stott wrote, we must not interpret Paul's glory in the Thessalonians in a way which conflicts with his affirmations that he will glory only in Christ and his cross. For the Thessalonians are trophies of Christ crucified. What Paul seems to mean in this transport of love is that his joy in this world and his glory in the next 
are tied up with the Thessalonians, whom Christ, through the apostles' ministry, has so signally transformed. See, Paul's own confidence in his faith, in his work as as an apostle, is tied up with the vibrancy and fortitude of the faith of the Thessalonians. As, As they live a life that's vibrant, it actually encourages him. And it gives him assurance in his walk with the Lord. They are fruits of his faithfulness and his call as an apostle, and therefore they are part of his crown of boasting, his victory crown. Which again sets forth some questions for us all. What are our priorities as believers? What, what, where is our hope and joy? Do, do we have hope and joy in others and in their walk with the Lord, in those that we can serve and love and care for? Of course, that, that hope and joy is, is rooted in Christ. That is where it is, but it can be bolstered and, and added to in some ways by the work of Christ in others in which we have participated. There's such a joy in my life as I look back over the years of ministry and, and just of being a Christian. I rejoice at the work of God in other people's lives that I was able to be a part of. I remember my first year working on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. I was fresh out of college. Um, I'm at a Christmas conference in Indianapolis, getting on the elevator. I've got my name tag. It says I'm staff. It says my name. And two guys get on the, two, two students get on the elevator. And one of them's like, hey there, Grandpa. I'm like, do you see this? Like, I am not a grandpa is what I'm thinking. And he goes on to explain, he was a student at Ball State where I went to school. And he goes on to explain that a guy named Matt Shockney led him to the Lord. Well, Matt was a student that I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with and leading to the Lord and discipling for multiple years. And so he just looks at me and he goes, you're my spiritual granddad. I'm like, oh, all right, okay, you can call me granddad for that. But there is, is such a joy in that, to see somebody that I had never met in my life, and yet I had an impact in his life because of the impact I played in somebody else's. It's an amazing thing to consider that somehow God chose to use me, and this just goes to show the power and grace of God to use sinners like you and me to see others come to faith and be built up and rooted more and more deeply in that faith. So let me encourage you in this. Your work matters. Your labors matter. Your time spent with others matters. Your labor in the gospel will last for an eternity. I mean, how many of you have built something new and you're like, man, that looks great. And five years later, you're like, that didn't last at all. Those labors don't last. Your labor in the gospel lasts forever and ever and ever. Stir up your love. Stir up your love for others and your love for the Lord to participate more and more fully in this work of the gospel. And it it doesn't take the biggest things. It can simply be an encouragement. It simply can be a word. It can be saying, hey, I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? Some of it can be taking a meal to somebody and caring for them when they need it. It can be a lot of different things. Just going and sitting with somebody and reading, reading Scripture with them. 
but stir up your love and your labor in the gospel with others. Because here's another reality. There is a danger out there. There is danger out there for believers in this world that that is constant. There is an enemy against the gospel and against the community of Christ. Think about this again. Why, Why did Paul send Timothy? Well, part of it, as already mentioned, was that he deeply cared for the Thessalonians. He had such a pastoral heart for him, and and because he couldn't end up going himself. And not that he hadn't tried over and over again, but in his various attempts to get back there, he was hindered. And he made it clear that he wasn't hindered because, oh, you know, he had a stomachache or something. Like, he was hindered. He said, Satan hindered me. Satan hindered him. Now, Paul was not some nut job who finds Satan under every nook and cranny. But he was well acquainted with the way of the enemy. In 2 Corinthians 2, and, uh, in verse 11, in the context of Paul charging the people, if, if you read 1 Corinthians 1 and, and chapter 5, there's this whole thing about you, you need to excommunicate this person because they're walking in sin. And it seems like in chapter 2, he's come back in the second letter, but they're not really receiving him well. They're not forgiving him. They're not doing what they ought to do as a church. And he's encouraging them, you need to forgive this repentant sinner because if you don't, there's going to be a doorway opened up for Satan to get back into his life. And so in 2.11, he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. So So Paul wasn't this guy who's absolutely obsessed, but he knew the way of Satan. He knew what Satan wanted to do with our lives. Now, what are those things? What are those designs of Satan? Well, Satan is looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Peter wrote, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, okay, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Does that sound like someone you want to mess around with? You want to meet in a dark corner? (laughs) No. Are we aware of this enemy? Now, I I am not saying study the ways of Satan and all that he does. Do not be obsessed. But I am encouraging us to be aware of his ways. You want a great book? Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's an old Puritan book, and it's wonderful in looking at the ways to, to deal with, to, to understand the way our enemy works and what it is to put on the armor of God and other things, to know His ways. We are not to be ignorant of His de- designs. So there is danger from the enemy, and however Paul was hindered, but there is also, he says in this letter, in our text, there's danger of affliction, which can be malicious, can, can definitely come di- directly from Satan, or sometimes it's just part of life in a broken and sinful world. Paul knew that the Thessalonians were undergoing affliction. Look again at verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul sent Timothy. We, We already talked about this a bit, but Timothy was a brother. He was dearly loved by Paul. 
and also God's co-worker in the gospel. Paul sent someone who could help in these afflictions. So Timothy was sent, and he was sent for a few reasons. The first reason was to establish and exhort. To establish and exhort them in their faith. So to establish or to strengthen. He sent Timothy to them to help them, to, to bolster them, to, 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 to help cause them to be more firm in their commitment to the Lord. My guess is Timothy went to teach and to teach the gospel again and again and again and the implications of the gospel in their lives. I'm reminded of Paul's benediction in Romans 16. He says this, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, And you know what he says next? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Him who is able to strengthen you. How does he strengthen you? Through the gospel. Through the preaching of Jesus. Not through the preaching of how-tos, how to have a better marriage, how to do this. Not that those things are necessarily bad. But the way we're strengthened is through the preaching of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That is how we grow. Because that will apply to every area of our lives. Don't fall into the how-tos and the deadly bees. Be this, be better, be this, be, be more. Those will kill you. But Jesus will give you life. I also think of Peter's words in his first letter. Chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish his people. You've suffered. You know who's there in your suffering? Jesus. And you know how we know that sometimes? Through fellow believers who are there with us along the way. So he sent them to strengthen, also to exhort them, to encourage and comfort, to cheer on, really, in many ways. They certainly needed that. Don't we all need cheering on sometimes? Timothy surely reminded them of what was true in the gospel, but he also, I'm sure, pointed out to them things that they had done well in the gospel, pointed out their standing firm, their imitation of Paul and the churches in Judea and how they stood firm in affliction. But he, 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 what he did was he looked for evidences of grace and he said, this is where God is at work in your life. Stand firm in that. See that and be encouraged. Be comforted. Be cheered on. And all of this to the purpose that no one be moved by these afflictions. These afflictions were surely persecutions in some way, but they could have been a lot of other things too. The word that's used is of anything of trouble that inflicts distress on someone. So affliction here could be anything that causes, uh, that, that inflicts distress in our lives. So I think about this today. In our context, you know, we're not, there's, there's no one knocking at our door saying we can't do this and all this kind of stuff. Thankfully, right now, that's not true. But we could have financial stress, sickness, family issues, relational issues, 
Some of these could come because of belief in the gospel. You could have family issues because of belief in the gospel. You could have relational issues because of belief in the gospel. Affliction will be there. Paul had warned them. When he was with them, he made it clear, hey, affliction is going to come. And then, you know, in many ways, he just had to say, look, because you're already receiving the word in affliction. <laughs> but just so you know, it's not going to end. It's not going to stop in this life. There may be times that, are, that, that, that there's a bit of a lull and a calm, but affliction will come. They were not unaware. They were not caught by surprise. In fact, they were destined for this. John Calvin wrote, Paul teaches that there is no reason why believers should feel dismayed on occasion of persecutions. As though it were a thing that was new and unusual, inasmuch as this is our condition, which the Lord has assigned to us. For this manner of expression, we are appointed to it, is as though he had said that we are Christians on this condition. Remember what Jesus spoke? I've said these things to you that in me you, have my peace. you may have peace. and the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's why he can restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. Because he's overcome. And in him we are called to be overcomers as well. See, Paul followed Jesus' lead. He did not want the Thessalonians to be moved. And so when he couldn't do it himself, when he couldn't go there himself, he sent Timothy to help care for them in their danger. This was his practice. He did not just go evangelize and leave. He actually worked in the midst of the churches, and then he'd come back through the churches. He'd go one way, and he'd turn around, and sometimes he'd come back. Acts 14, 21 to 23, this is what was written. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith. Don't those two words sound really familiar to what we just said? And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they'd go back through. They'd, they'd evangelize, they'd make disciples, and then they'd go back through strengthening and encouraging them and saying, hey, just so you know, you're going to face affliction. They prepared them, and they wanted them to do well. Folks, we will have difficulty and affliction Part of our life together is one of establishing then and exhorting each other in the gospel in the midst of these afflictions. That's much of my calling as a pastor. That's much of what I do because we will all face affliction for the faith. I don't know how it will come. Maybe at work you'll be asked to do something that goes against God's words and way and, and, and you won't do it. And you face some repercussions because of it. Maybe friends will want you to affirm something that you cannot affirm because it goes against God's truth. And you'll face some repercussions because of it. Maybe it could just be sickness or, or other things that are going on in, in your life. And, and that's part of the community is to come along and strengthen and encourage and establish. It could be myriad ways, but this again shows our need for community. And what a pleasing community is, it's one that comes alongside each other and loves and cares for one another, that helps each other to persevere in our faith. And that's where we move next. 
Because that is part of Paul's concern. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. When Paul could not stand the lack of knowing anymore how the Thessalonians were doing, that's when he sent Timothy. He was concerned that the Thessalonians could have been tempted in a way that would dampen the effectiveness of Paul's labors in the gospel. Now, in this verse, there is an implicit warning for us. But there are also explicit warnings throughout Scripture, explicit warnings to to stand firm, to hold fast, to continue on so as to persevere, to not be moved. Now, we believe this. We believe that when God calls a sinner, that a true believer will persevere. God will not let his children go. Read John 10, 28. No one will snatch them out of his hand. Our Savior is strong enough to keep his people. But there are still warnings. Listen to Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. These warnings are to encourage us to use the means necessary to keep us from sin and to persevere in the faith. They're to show us that we cannot just float and grow. One, we're swimming against the stream. If you're floating, you're going backwards. God uses means to work the perseverance in us. He uses the means of grace. That's why we care so much about the Word of God the sacraments, the fellowship, prayer. That's why we care, because that's the means that God ordinarily uses to care for His people and to encourage us. We're called to hold on to our confidence, to hold to what we know, but the pull of this world is strong, and we need constant encouragement and exhortation to stand firm in the midst of it. The tempter will do his work. He does not take a day off. Our hearts need directed consistently to the glorious glorious message of God's great love for sinners. It really is an amazing message. Don't let it become so familiar that it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, heard that before. Don't say, I know this, or I've heard it. There is so much here that we can learn and grow in that pushes us on and on in the gospel. Folks, our enemy does not want us to know this message, does not want us to believe it, to trust it, to rely and rest upon it alone. He wants us to doubt it and forsake it or to take it for granted. So let's encourage one another in that. But when you read through this this verse as well, there's, there's one side note thing that I think just need to address. And that is this. How would Paul think that his labor would be in vain when earlier in this letter, he talked about how it wasn't in vain. Is he contradicting himself already in this letter? In, in 1.4, he, he wrote about how confident he was of God's choice in them. 
Now, one solution is that this, this part of the letter was written from the perspective of Paul while he's kind of having this anxiety over the Thessalonians before he got the report back from Timothy, and then he gets the report back from Timothy, and he's like, oh, everything's great. You guys are doing well. But there's a lot of things in this letter that actually say pretty much right away he he saw it. He saw their imitation. He saw how they turned to, to, from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for the Son from heaven. So perhaps another solution is that Paul was confident of some of their faith, that it was mature, but there were others that he didn't have the same confidence in. And he longed not just for the establishment of a few believers, but the establishment of a church, of a community of believers to be there, to love one another, and and to see it be an outpost for the gospel moving forward. And his words earlier were an encouragement to press on. This is just another way to word that charge. But there, there, there is some aspect, too, where there's just pastoral anxiety. You may know that, that people are doing well, but you, you wonder <laughs> because you see how things are going or you know the attacks of the enemy are real. So in this, folks, the, the implicit warning here is real. And from this, a, t- a takeaway I think we have is that we need to learn the value of the means of grace. Take full advantage of them. Sunday morning fellowship with the believers is never an afterthought. In many ways, this should be the thing we look forward to more than anything else. This is where we're preparing ourselves for an eternity and loving each other in the here and now. Another thing is we ought to regularly examine our own hearts. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine ourselves to to see how we're doing. Are we really believing what is true? Are we pursuing righteousness, peace, and love? Or are we being led astray by what is false? You know, it might be kind of a trite saying, but garbage in, garbage out. I mean, what are we putting in? What are we feeding our hearts and minds with? Then this, do we understand the faith? And this is not saying that we have a perfect knowledge. None of us have that. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer or not. You don't have a perfect knowledge of the faith. But are we growing? Are we moving on? Do we, do we rest and trust in Jesus and grow as He works in us? And this should be happening in community. We can turn to one another. We can help each other. And I will tell you this, and, and you probably know this too, the one who helps is strengthened just as much or more sometimes than the one they help, than the one they encourage, than the one they exhort. It's a wonderful dynamic that God has worked out, that the person who actually is helping is growing in the midst of it. I know that I'm personally encouraged by the hunger of others to grow and to know more of God. It's a beautiful thing, being a pastor, to see people who desire to stand firm and be part of community, the community of faith, and and to seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So, folks, I I think what we we see in, in this section of Paul's letter is his deep affection for these believers. He understands the reality of community. 
and how much it's needed and what goes on there. And his love for others drives him to that community and drives him to want to see that community thrive and flourish in the midst of danger and, and, and be one that perseveres. He wants to see them stand firm and persevere in the midst of danger, of affliction. He, he longed for the people to stay in Christ, to rest in him, to be strengthened by the gospel and to stand firm, to not be moved by these afflictions. That's part of what makes the community that is pleasing to the Lord. It's a community that points one another to the truth of the gospel consistently and constantly. Folks, our hope rests in Christ. We know that. Be encouraged in that. But it can and it will be strengthened by the faith of others. Your relationship, your walk with the Lord will be strengthened by others in this community. Be involved with them. Know them. Love them. Be encouraged by them. And so let us be a people who love well, who point each other to our Savior, to the one who is the person who ultimately holds us all fast in his hands, and he will never let us go. Let's pray. Father, give us your strength. Encourage us in the gospel. Grow us to be more like you each day and grow us in community that we would more and more glorify you, take advantage of what you have given us. Lord, you know the world in which we live, and you've given us this shelter in the church. May we love her. May we love one another. May we love you and long to be with you. In Christ's name, amen.